Well, let's bow together again in prayer to seek God's face for his blessing upon us today. We need to help the Lord when it comes to his word. Let's pray for God's grace again today. Eternal God and Father, we come again in Christ's name. We thank you for the word of God that shows us Christ in such clarity. Thank you for the Old Testament. We see Christ in types and shadows and in predictions. We thank you for the glories of the Gospels. We see Christ coming in the likeness of sinful man. Thank you, Lord, for the epistles. We see, O Lord, the explanation of Christ and his person and his work, his work of redemption for lost sinners. We bless thee, O Lord, for the hope of the revelation. Christ will come again, and all things will be made new. And O eternal God, we pray that these precious Christ-centered notes would thrill our hearts again today. Help us, O God, to delight in the Scriptures. We pray for the grace to study carefully and diligently the Word of God. We have a Bible that reveals to us who thou art and the duties that thou require of us. May these words indeed be that chart and compass to guide us in our ways. Help us, O God, to live according to these things, that our minds would be rightly informed, and that our lives would live consistently with the knowledge we have of our God. Bless us to that end today. Give help in every aspect of Bible teaching in the house of God. We think again of the Sabbath school downstairs, and the young people and the children being taught the word. May they hide the word of God in their hearts, that they would not sin against thee. May the word of God live and abide in their souls. May they delight, O God, in the revelation of myself. I pray also for, uh, again, our own needs here throughout the day. Grant us the help of the Spirit of God. We we don't want this to be a simple uh, academic exercise. We want, O Lord, the help of God. So keep us, we pray. Give us grace. Help us to be diligent and careful. And bless those again who can watch on and listen in. May we all know the help of the Most High God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's take our Bibles again today and we'll turn to the Psalm 145. Uh, the Psalm 145. I'm going to read some verses here from this portion of Scripture as we come to our studies again today, continuing in our series on the existence and the attributes of God. Uh, we're still very much in the foundational uh, ground discussing the matter of God's existence and the, uh, the revelation that He's given to us to help us in our faith that God is indeed, and that he's the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so Psalm 145, let's read together from the verse number 8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. Amen. This is the word of God and may it be a blessing and a comfort to our souls. Again, we have been embarking on this study looking at really the Evidences that there are from God himself regarding his existence. Things that are given to comfort and strengthen the faith of the saints. And yes, things that leave the unconverted without excuse. 
And so we're looking at this under these kind of three general headings, uh, creation, conscience, and today we'll look at the subject of Christ as the ultimate revelation of the existence of God. Now, I've given you the three C's, really, to help you remember these concepts. And if you're in a a conversation with someone, uh, you can use these very conveniently. But when we speak of Christ, we're really really speaking of the entire Scriptures. uh, Because Christ is a theme of the Scriptures. uh, And so we're showing you, well, how has God made himself known in his word? Uh, We've sang that hymn about the word of God incarnate. Uh, Of course, the Word of God incarnate, Christ Jesus, is the fulfillment of the Word of God inscripturated. And so we have the Word that reveals Christ uh, to mankind. And so Christ really, uh, as a heading, encompasses all of God's purposes to make himself known. Because all of God's revelation ultimately comes to a center in Christ Jesus. He is a theme of revelation. Everything essentially comes drawing men to an understanding of the Son of God, the Redeemer of God's elect. But as we think of this matter of Christ and redemption, I want to particularly focus on the subject here of of miracle, the subject of the miraculous. It's a very broad topic when you think of Christ, but the performance of miracles are given by God as acts of divine revelation, proving that God is, that God is not distant, and that God is working out redemption in this world. Look at our text there, verse number 10. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. Verse 12. In terms of these works, and speaking of these works, to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts, and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. The mighty acts of God are given by God, passed on by the church to make God known not only who he is, but also his purpose in this everlasting kingdom. And so we're thinking of these mighty acts, these miraculous acts of God. Now, again, the term mighty acts there is, is very, very broad, and we're not going to do an encompassing study of miracles in the Scriptures. But we are going to show you, I trust, how God acts above natural laws. Now here, language is so important. What, what is a miracle? How do we define miracle? Again, we use the term so often, you know, a newborn babe is brought into the world, and the parents go, oh, he or she, it's a little miracle. Now, I understand the sentiment as a, as a parent, but strictly speaking, it's probably not the best way to use the term miracle. Now, when I refer to nature and natural laws, I'm not suggesting they are distinct from God. We don't believe in Mother Nature, not for one second. We believe in God the Father and the Creator of all things. But God in creation has put into place what we see as natural laws. You know, there are things that happen according to natural law. Childbirth, one of those things that God has placed in creation that happens in the, if I please understand the term, in the ordinary course of nature. Ordinary as opposed to extraordinary or supernatural. Even the language of supernatural is something above nature. And that helps us get to your definition of miracle. Where God does something that is not according to the laws of nature. 
You take the incarnation of Christ Jesus. It's an act that is above nature. God himself working in the womb of the Virgin Mary to bring about the conception of the Christ of God. And so you see that as a, as a definition of miracle. I want to show you that really these miracles are, are revelatory miracles and they leave man without excuse and they also help the faith of the believer. They are evidences or revelations for the existence of God. I want to show this in, really in three separate categories. Show this initially in terms of a pattern of redemption, uh, then in prophecies of redemption, and then also in terms of the person of redemption. The pattern, please turn uh, back a little bit in your Bibles to the Psalm 106. You see, when I refer to a pattern here of redemption, I'm referring to what's often known as the miracle of the Red Sea. I highlight that not for convenience, but because it is consistently used in the Old Testament as a manifestation of the power and purpose of God. It's one of those times when the people of God are praying or they're considering God's purposes, they find themselves continuing to go back to what God did in delivering the people from Egypt and then ultimately across the Red Sea and then through the wilderness into the Promised Land. But Psalm 106 and the verse number 8, you'll see the language here. Again, the context is the people of God. Verse number 7, our fathers understood not thy wonders in Egypt. They remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Okay, so you know the situation here. There was trouble. Why did you bring us out of Egypt Better for us to live long and die there than to live short and die here on the shores of the Red Sea. And the Egyptian armies are coming, the sea's in front, the armies behind. We have no hope, we're all doomed, we are lost, and they provoke God through their unbelief. Verse 8, nevertheless. What a wonderful word that is. You could just spend an entire study on that, couldn't you? The nevertheless of God. I think it's true to say, and this is totally off the point of our study today, but I think it's true to say that we live over it every day in the nevertheless. We wake up. In those early moments of our waking day, we forget God and don't trust in God for our first breath of the day. Nevertheless, we scorn God's ways in our lives. Nevertheless, we choose sinful actions. Nevertheless, it's a wonderful Wonderful word of God's encompassing grace. But leaving that aside, he says here in verse 8, Nevertheless, he saved them, and here's the point, for his name's sake. And so the purpose of the Red Sea is, yes, to bring the people to the promised land, but what's at stake at that moment is the name and the reputation and the testimony of God. If they die on the shores of the Red Sea, God's name and God's promises are going to be cast into the dirt. And so for his own name's sake, he saves them. But even that's not all that's involved. Because of what it says next, that he might make his mighty power to be known. And so God, in acting in miracle, has the determined purpose to make his known visible and seen and be beyond challenge. You see, how, how is the Red Sea, how is the Red Sea a miracle that reveals God to us today? 
What's involved in that? What has to take place? Let's think of this. So I'm going to tell you right now that for you sitting here this morning, the Red Sea is a miracle that should convince you of the reality of God, that he is, that he's a powerful God that intervenes. So what all is involved between the Red Sea and today that would enable you to have this conviction? So what do you think? What's, what steps are involved? What parts are involved in this, in this matter? Yeah, Paul. Okay, so the theme there is of deliverance from a great enemy. So we, we see that theme. But, but even just in terms of history, what had to happen? The people are standing at the shore. What do they do at the shore? What active part do they play? Nothing. They complain, but they don't play any active part, but they do something very important. They see it. They see the event happen in front of them. That's a very, very important part of this. And so what happens by that? Well, they see it, and then, as eyewitnesses, those things are recorded in the Word of God. So that's part of it. See, what is a miracle? It is something that stands the test of evidence. And the strongest evidence are eyewitnesses. And thousands of them, thousands and thousands of them, all able to say, this happened before us. And so when the Bible is written, these things are recorded, and there are those who say, yes, that indeed happened according as it is written. So you've that step, okay? You've got the eyewitnesses. You then have the second step, that what they see is recorded by Moses in the early books of our Bibles. What also is involved, though? This, this itself is, is a wonderful thing in terms of God's action. What's involved in getting what Moses wrote to us today? Yeah. Preservation. The preservation of God's word through the centuries. Moses wrote this account maybe once. Others then copy it. They copy it perfectly. Those copies are then passed on, and there is the preservation of God's Word so that we can read about the Red Sea today and say, yes, God is. He's the God that split the Red Sea. It's a miracle that's about God making His name shown. You see the language here? Verse number 8 again, that He might make His mighty power to be known. God does not perform miracles in a corner or in a way that cannot be attested. You know, one of the great charges against the, the modern Catholic movement and their claim of the miraculous is no proof for their miracles. They're often done in some way that the proof is very spurious at best or non-existent. God's miracles are never in doubt. The blind actually see. The lame actually walk. The Red Sea was actually split and the people passed through it. It's part of God making himself known. You see, turn across to, the, to, to Isaiah 63. I just want to show you this again in a few places. Just this, really emphasize this point that the miraculous is given to us in part that God would make himself known. Isaiah 63. Our brother Adam, Pastor Eshelman, last night was preaching on Isaiah 66, and he read these verses. And again, it, it struck me again in light of what we're looking at this morning. 
You've got there verse number 10. But they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. And therefore he was turned to be their enemy and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old Moses and his people saying, Where is he that brought them up out of the the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? that led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them. Look again what he says. To make himself an everlasting name. Verse 14. Thou didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. Again, the, the concept of name here has to do with the fame and the honor of God. It is that we see him being revealed in this miracle. His name is known. So God is acting, remember? Creation, conscience. And now in this pattern of redemption that points to Christ, we're seeing God making himself known that we have no doubt God is. And we should worship this God. You see, the accounts of the Red Sea and the events in the wilderness, they were spread abroad. They weren't just kept within Israel, but they were acts of God to make himself known. You, you turn across to Joshua now. I'm going to show you just two uh, evidence for this fact that God made himself known through these miracles. You have Joshua chapter 2, and of course it is the events concerning Rahab. And Rahab, in her conversation with the spies, gives us an insight into what was happening in those days. We have heard, verse number 10, says Rahab, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when ye came out of Egypt. She also comments on the kings, Sion and Og, and their destruction, but I'm simply saying, we have heard. Verse 11, and as soon as we heard these things, our hearts did melt. I just think it's fascinating that at no point did Rahab go to the scientists of her day and say, this couldn't be the case? Surely we, we know that war cannot pile up like a heap. This, this can't be the case. They understood. The evidence must have, been, must have been clear. The accounts must have been verifiable. That they came to the point, we can't explain this, but we know it happened and our hearts did melt. You know, the skepticism of the modern age is again part of the devil's agency to provoke unbelief. The evidence of God's working in this world is clear and plain. We have again this verifiable eyewitness account of a miracle of God. Rahab did not need to be convinced. She understood it happened. And she feared. She feared God. And the same was true again over in Joshua chapter 9. Regarding the Gibeonites, Joshua chapter 9. Again, I understand the challenging nature of their acts at this time and the deception they got involved in. But Joshua chapter 9, verse number 9, And they said unto Joshua, From a very far country thy servants are come because of the name of the Lord thy God, for we have heard the fame of him and all that he did in Egypt. There's a mixture here again, of course, of truth and deception. I, I understand that but they are still coming, presenting knowledge that they received regarding the actions of God. He made himself known. And so miracle, I believe, is part of God's purpose that we are left without doubt. 
God comes, the God of creation, and steps above and beyond natural things and makes his mighty power made known. That's the matter of the pattern. Any questions or comments on that? And again, there's so many things we could, we could look at that. Yeah, George. Yeah, so George is just kind of, for those who are watching on, George is making the point that God makes his name known again, particularly in the Old Testament, in his creative power. So we see his power and his glory. You get that in Romans 1. His name is made known through his creative power. But in the miraculous, you're really seeing his covenant of mercies uh, coming to pass. In covenant, I, I would expand it even beyond that, George, and probably try to help you even simplify things and summarize things in, in a different way. God's name as a term and a concept has classically been known as anything whereby God makes himself known. Okay, it's just one of those sort of catchy definitions. What is the name of God? Anything whereby he makes himself known. And so you, you, you see that example in the, in the language of faith. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous are into it. They're, they're safe. And so the, the name of God is, is much more than just the, the word whereby he's called. The name of God refers to all that he is. And so if his name is that, how has God made his name known? Well, creation, providence, and redemption. Those are the three classical ways which God makes himself known. So we see that his work in creation shows uh, aspects of his power and his glory, uh, the wonder of his wisdom, all of those things, his truthfulness, all that's seen in, in creation. And we then see his abiding uh, providence of this world. He upholds all things. And so we, we saw those things really in terms of the, the, this first sea creation, God makes himself known in that regard. And so in this third area, we are looking at this area of God's covenantal faithfulness in the person of Christ. And we're seeing, well, miracles is part of that. And so, yeah, there are different ways to cut this up, uh, different ways to organize this. Um, but if you think in terms of what does God do in this world, well, all of God, God's acts make himself known. His act of creation, uh, providence, and, and his act of redemption. It was very helpful, John. I think it's a, good, it's a good kind of thought and summary. Uh, the miraculous is, is not divorced from his redemptive purposes. We shouldn't see, and I'm not trying to make that point. I'm trying to, encump, I'm trying to include a miracle under the heading of Christ. Uh, you see that God acts in miracles for the good of his people and the establishment of his kingdom and his church. So, yeah, it's helpful. Yeah, it's good. Okay. Well, let's move on to the thought of prophecy here. Now you say, well, why, why would I include prophecy under this heading of Christ? Uh, 
and miracle. What is prophecy? Okay, there's different definitions, uh, different thoughts. Even the scriptures, there are different types of prophecy. There are times in which prophecy, and I haven't done the mathematics, but I, I'm suspicious that the majority of prophecy is God putting forth his word rather than foretelling the future. That's the other aspect. So prophecy, God delivers his word, but a large part of it is still this idea of God revealing the future. Is that miraculous? Is that an act of miracle? What do you think? Depends on your definition here. So I'm stretching the definition to some degree, but in what sense is prophecy perhaps included under the miraculous? Okay, so that's, that's the end point, okay? So there, there are these various, there are various stages, if you like, of prophecy. So you, you've got the end of it, you've got it, it being fulfilled. Okay, so that's, that's the end point. It's fulfilled. Yeah, Christina. Okay, so he has to, he has to know what's going to happen. There's one before that as well, in terms of God's prophecies. Yeah, he decides. So he, he decides, or we often use the term um, wills or decree. All of those things are involved here. Yeah, he decides, will, decrees, knows. And there's one bit in the middle. And each of these are, again, they're, they're, they're a development of proof of the, of the wonder of God's power. Any thoughts? Yeah. Governs. Yeah, he governs. So I would include governance in terms of the fulfillment of it. He governs things to bring it to pass. He has to reveal it. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. So the act of prophecy is revelation. So you, you take Daniel, just for example, and the revelation that God gives even through the dreams and the visions of Daniel, uh, things that come to pass, you know, you, without any interpretation of Daniel, uh, the visions that Daniel sees are things that come to pass between Daniel's time and Christ's first coming. The kingdoms rise, the kingdoms fall. The Medes, the Persians, the Greek, the Romans, those kingdoms come to pass through those visions. So what's happened in that? God has determined that the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans would come in succession in the kingdoms of man prior to Christ's first coming. God willed that in all eternity. He then, having known that will, he makes that known in and through Daniel. Daniel has zero capacity of understanding that without the revelation of God. He has no way of knowing what's going to transpire over the next 500 years. No hope. No way. His knowledge of that is a work of divine grace. God, in his mercy, comes and says to Daniel, these things are going to come to pass. And what happens? They come to pass. Again, because the God who willed it and knows these things and revealed it has the infallible power to bring all these things to pass. And even a rival kingdom, uh, let's say a rival kingdom to the, to the Greeks, they could not prevent Alexander the Great and all of his advances. They couldn't do it. They may want it to, but they couldn't. 
because God had determined that these things would come to pass. All of that is part of God's amazing, miraculous dealings in this world. And so these things really are are wonderful in that they are revelations of the future events, and they come with precise detail. Precise detail. Yeah, George. Linda. All the promises are keeping with God's redemptive purposes. No, so, yes and no. There are certainly prophecies that deal with God's judgment purposes as well. So it's not, not, all, not all redemptive. A lot of prophecy, you take what we're reading in, in Jeremiah at the present time, there are judgments, warnings against the Babylonians that are going to come to pass, not in redemption, but in, but in condemnation. But yeah, you certainly see, and we're, we're going to look at a, a few minutes we have, we're going to look at one particular aspect of prophecy we're going to see that isn't within the concept of redemption. Yeah, yeah that. Yeah, and that, those promises are not all prophecies. You know, there are things that God promises to do in types and shadows. Okay, so I, I, I put it in the, in the promises, and we're going to tonight, tonight we're going to see in Romans 9, Israel had the promises. Uh, the promises that pertain to Messiah, but they don't only come in, in direct words from God, they also come in God revealing the tabernacle. And the temple and those sacrifices, they, they're all part of showing God's promises. So, yeah, but, so these are, we're looking at an hour or section here. We're looking at, at God explicitly in his words saying, this is going to happen. And then it happens. You, you can't do that. Only God can do that. Only God can say this will happen. And it happens. And it happens in absolute perfect fulfillment. You know, so let's look at this just again. We're going to fly through. So we've got five minutes left. We're going to fly through Matthew's gospel. Okay, so turn to Matthew. And you're going to see one word recurring. Matthew's gospel. Again, what's my point here today? It is to show you that in these miraculous ways, God is giving evidence regarding his existence and also in his delight to do good to those who put their trust in him. Okay, that's what we're seeing here. We're seeing God is, and he is the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Matthew chapter 1, verse number 22. Please get your Bibles ready. I'm going to go fast. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Matthew chapter 4, verse 14. I'm skipping some here as well, okay? Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, it says, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast and the borders of Zabulon and Nephthalim, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zabulon, the land of Nephthalim, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee, Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat at the region of the shadow of death, light is sprung up. Matthew chapter 8 and the verse number 17. We saw this in our studies in communion uh, last month. He heals the sick. 
He delivers those possessed devils, verse 17, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Matthew chapter 12 and the verse number 17. That it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry. Neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall I not break, and swinging flag shall I not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Matthew chapter 13, verse 14. I've missed some of these as well. I, haven't, I didn't even look at the ones in chapter 2. But chapter 13, verse 14. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, who said, By hearing shall ye hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. I'll pause there briefly, uh, because again, in the context of Isaiah, particularly towards the end of the passage, there are these revelations of the coming Messiah, and he comes to those who will not hear. That's part of Isaiah's initial ministry, Isaiah 6. They're not going to hear, but you see it later on in Isaiah. It's quoted in Romans chapter 10. Uh, people reject what they hear, and that is fulfilled in the rejection of Israel, of their Messiah. Chapter 21, the verse number 4. 21, verse number 4. This regarding the, the, the cult. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass. Again, there it is, according to the fulfillment of prophecy. Chapter 26 and the verse 54. Again, regarding the the sword, and the Lord says, But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? Again, one of the challenges that comes regarding Christ fulfilling the prophecy is the unbeliever will say, Well, Jesus knew the Bible very, very well, and he engineered these things to come to pass. So he met the guy with the colt, the fool they asked, he discussed this with him, he organized it in advance, and therefore he made sure that he fulfilled that particular prophecy. Of course, such unbelief will always come up with anything they can think of to deny the obvious. And whilst that is not an inconceivable scenario, when this is taken in its whole, there were things that were fulfilled in Christ before he had, and please understand this in humanity, before he had the ability to speak or to engineer anything in his humanity. He's a babe wrapped in swaddling bands and lying in a manger. And scripture is being fulfilled. But you take his death. And again, even his death, he did not do these things. Verse number 56 of the same chapter. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Again, in film of prophecy. Chapter 27, verse number 9. That then was fulfilled that which is spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. Chapter 27 
and the verse number 35, the last one, and they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. Please do not for a second think that the Roman authorities had such a knowledge of Scripture that they thought of themselves at that time, let's do what the Scripture says. Of course not. That's unthinkable. It's not reasonable. It's evidence that God is able to predict the future and bring it to pass in absolute perfection and precise detail. There is a God in heaven. He really does exist, and he steps in and makes himself known to mankind. Yeah, Dan. Yeah, one of the things, when we, we said this before, so again, for those watching, Dad's making the point regarding uh, Pharaoh's hardening of his heart, and uh, I think we, we make, the, make the point often, there's no lack of evidence for believing God in the gospel. And so men, in stubborn unbelief, refuse to accept what is obvious. There are two things, though, in, in that. On the one hand, we say, well, yeah, they are, they are blinded according to depravity. That's you know, what they are by nature. But they're also responsible for closing their eyes to the truth. You know, and they, they determine in their own minds, I'm not going to hear the truth. And so we don't deny their responsibility. And yet when it comes to those of us who come to see the evidence and come to the right conclusions, it's not because we were studious and careful. It's because of the wonders of God's grace that our eyes were open to see, ah, of course. Why was I so stupid for all these years not to see the obvious? And now, now I see that God is, and now I see he rewards those who diligently seek him. And so we see it according to grace. And yes, all of those things are, are part of the fulfillment of God's uh, sovereign and eternal will. So we're going to have to leave it there for time. We'll come back next time and look at this matter of the person of Christ, uh, and particularly the miraculous in the person of Christ, and how, again, those miracles were performed in such a way that they cannot be contested and they're given to us that we would see that God is, uh, and then that really does bring things together in terms of God's covenantal purposes. Uh, so that'll be the last study in terms of these evidences, but uh, we'll leave it there for uh, today. So let's all pray, and let's ask God's help again. Heavenly Father, we thank you we come to thee, the God who is, and we pray you'd help us, although we do struggle with unbelief. Uh, we have to confess at times we, we see the secular world around us, they live in oblivion to thy being. And dear Father, at times we find ourselves perhaps tempted to do the same. Forgive us our sin and help us, O God, to walk humbly uh, with faith, believing in thee. Grant us grace throughout today. May our worship indeed be acceptable in thy sight. 
Help us to honor and glorify thee in all of our ways. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.